Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Helen Holliman, editor-in-chief of Munchies, and welcome back to Munchies the Podcast. If you're just tuning in, welcome to my hometown, Austin, Texas, where we're going to be broadcasting over the course of the next six episodes. We'll be exploring what's left of the unique, weird old Austin and learn about the booming urban city that it's becoming. Today, we're bringing you a special bonus episode, two back-to-back live interviews we recorded at South Bites, South by Southwest food programming, which features panels, talks, and events with some of the most influential people in the food world. So first, I spoke with Andrew Zimmern, food writer and host of Bizarre Foods on the Travel Channel, the guy who's consumed more innards, creepy crawlies, and odiferous foods than most of us will in our lifetimes. He's also experienced some of the most profound meals in the most remote communities around the world. But rather than chatting about what it's like to eat skewered tarantula, I wanted to get his impressions on what it means when a community experiences the death of a dish and the tradition behind it. We then sat down with sushi chef Tyson Cole, but more on that later. First, let's talk to Andrew Zimmern. What I want to kind of explore today is like, what does it mean when a community loses a food? Um, we live in this very uh, food-obsessed culture at this point. We're sort of at the the zenith of where food can be, right? And, um, you know, we have these giant Instagram influencers. We have obsessive food shows uh, about chefs we have great shows like yours that kind of take you to the place i like the way you separated mine from the 99 percent of horseshit <laughs> food and travel television that exists i mean there's like there's like five or six good shows out of a hundred out there but that just shows i think how popular and mainstreamish mm-hmm. the genre has become yeah so let's start with the beginning of the show mm-hmm. when you first kind of went to a place where it was so remote, maybe you were off the map, so to speak. You went into a community. Where were you? Who were you with? What were you eating? And you ate something that made you feel far away from home and is something that you had never come across before. Uh, episode one, show one, day one. Can you tell we're at South by Southwest? There's another party <laughs> going on next door. Uh, day one, episode one, show one. I flew to Tokyo. It was actually for the pilot. Um, and I found myself at eight in the morning on a street in a very weird neighborhood in Tokyo, out of the way, warehousey, tiny little 400 square foot restaurant that we were eating in. Someone just did a shot of tequila. Um, and... The restaurant was called the Asadachi, which means morning erection in Japanese. And it was a place that successful businessmen would go after a night of drinking to eat weird food to seal a deal. And a guy skinned a frog in front of me and fed me the still-beating organs and then made sashimi with the flesh and then fried the skin and served it with rice and then did a little braised soupy thing with the bones and and head and stuff like that. And... um then put the bile into a little shot of booze, and I don't drink, so I, you know, uh, you know, 
Arigato, I'm allergic. And um, I, I, felt, I felt like I had fallen through a, a rabbit hole, Alice in Wonderland style. And that was 11 years ago, and it's never stopped. And that includes shooting episodes here in America where we purposely sought out lifestyles, you know, covert and overt, but that had a hidden component to them that people didn't realize existed. The reason being that food is good, food with a story is better, but food with a story you haven't necessarily heard before is probably best of all. So it happened immediately. And we even on that first trip to Asia, we started cataloging these dying breed stories and these the, the way the world is shifting and changing. And quite frankly, when you were talking to us being at this sort of apogee moment, I, I don't think we're even close to that. I think the rocket still has fuel to burn. There's there's a couple of us that think it's just going to get more intense and more fun. I've you know David Chang is one of them. Sam Cass is one of them. I'm one of them who keeps saying it's it's getting bigger and more impactful because food can change the world. The shitty side of the equation. Can I say that on this podcast? Oh, yeah. The yeah. shitty side of that equation. I can't say that on my TV show, so I have to be very careful, <laughs> um, is that while we're in this incredible romantic period with food and travel culture, and we fetishize it to the point of insane popularity, never at one time has that world that we're selling in the pages of fancy food magazines and on cable television and primetime food specials with you know famous chefs and stuff like that, even though we're doing that, at no other time in human history has the, the, the gap been so huge as well. Eating that way and talking about, you know, varietals of California wine with, you know, notes of toast and hints of plum in it, that <laughs> lifestyle, the dry-aged beef lifestyle, the bespoke sushi lifestyle, whatever it is that we're selling is the heirloom vegetable life, this whole thing is n not for everyone. Eating that way is a class issue. I wish it wasn't, but I think our growth spurt is that we're going to see the influence among so many about what food can do and how powerful it is as a, as a society changer is going to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we're going to use food to solve a lot more global problems. All right, we're going to go to a dark place before we go to a, a happy place. I love so, it. So is there a food or is there a community that you have actually covered in your 11-year run where um, it has gone extinct? Tons. In, yeah. Can, can you pick kind of a, a specific one that you found out about after the fact that bummed you out? I'll give you a couple snapshots of different aspects of it. Um, we made a really famous show in Samoa. It won a lot of awards with a lot of tribal people in it. Uh, that part of Samoa is a tuna economy. Um, the tuna schools no longer swim past there, uh, creating literal instantaneous poverty uh, amongst people who would fish for tuna with nets just on the other side of a barrier reef and then use that tuna to barter. Even You could pay your electrical bills in certain parts of tribal Samoa with, with tuna when I was there. Um, two years later, the 2,000 people that lived on that stretch of coastline were, including everyone in the show, was dead because of the tsunami. So not only was their way of life taken away, but they were taken away. I mean, so it was an incredible, incredible tragedy. Um, 
go forward another year and I'm in Saigon. I was in Saigon. Uh, No, I was in Hanoi. And uh, we went and spent the day with a grandmother. And in, in, in Vietnam, even today, the vast majority of people shop two or three times a day for food. Their kitchens are very small. There's really even, there's no restaurant culture there. There's restaurants and hotels and there's little eight-seater places and stuff like that. But in, in Vietnam, you know, home cooking and snack eating on the street is predominant. I, I've gone there for pleasure traveling with friends and I, uh, you go a week without eating in a restaurant. I mean, you sit in this little place and someone serves you an incredible bowl of pho and a couple little fried and steamed goodies to eat first. And you've, it's the best food you've eaten in years. And you, move, you pay a couple of quarters and, and you move on. But it's not really a restaurant. Multiple generations live in the same structure. And the grandma who we shop with at lunch and then she was going to make dinner cook this meal with eight or nine very traditional things, things that everyone here who's been to a Vietnamese restaurant would recognize in one form or another, right? I mean, some of the ingredients may be a little arcane. Uh, she made one dish that's very familiar to everyone with a lot of ginger and, and, and holy basil, uh, but she used snails instead of your choice of pork, sh- chicken, shrimp, or beef, right? But it was all very recognizable food. And in the middle of the scene, the kids who barely ate anything were kept begging to be excused from the table, and the grandmother excused them. And she turned to me and shook her head, and I said, what's wrong? Thinking I was going to get the typical grandmother, sorry my kids didn't behave, I know you wanted them in the scene, all the rest of this kind of stuff, we're going to have that conversation. Instead, she said, Vietnamese food is dying in Vietnam. And I, and I looked at her and I said, what do you mean by that? And she says, well, the kids are going to the Jollibee, which is a Philip, Filipino mega food chain that's like, they, they basically took Kentucky Fried Chicken, Taco Bell, and McDonald's and merged them into one fast food concept where you can kind of get everything. And everything's a dollar and it's just, it's some of the worst food you'll ever taste. And um, with horrible ingredients and it's just, Anyway, it had just opened in Hanoi, because you have to remember, this is essentially a communist country, right? But it, doesn't, it, but it also wants to be an economic global powerhouse, so it's, it's got an identity crisis. And the, the culture there is, is disappearing. Like, not just a food, but entire categories of cooking, because in a, in a nation where for thousands of years everyone learned to cook the same hundred dishes at literally at hanging on to the apron strings of their grandmother, they are no longer, not only are they no longer eating it, they're no longer interested in it. It's not important to them. This is a culture that has moved so fast, right? 30 years ago there were no TVs, and now they are so highly plugged in and wired that kids are like, I don't want to be a guava farmer. You know, I want to be Kanye West. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, it's that kind of thing that we see out there. Um, same thing in Mongolia. Same thing in so, so many African countries, South American countries, countries. You have these traditional ways of doing things that are just gone. Um, and yes, I've, I've been in places where the, the cod are no longer swimming. And entire areas of Newfoundland... And, and fishing communities are, are physically dying. Probably the, the most dramatic for us with everyone's favorite food, tuna, uh, was down on the southern coast of uh, Sicily in a little town called Marzamemi, 
and Marzameme is was the tuna and tuna canning capital of the world for a thousand years. And there were 45 tuna processors. And when I say that, I'm not talking about like factories the way we think of them, but places where the boats would pull up, unload fresh giant tunas of several different species. The tuna would be processed. Some would be dried. The, the milt would be dried. The skin, I mean, they used every part of it. They would turn some of the organs. They would salt and turn into like a tuna botarga from those organs. Uh, some would be canned. The rest would be you know, eaten fresh in local restaurants and stuff. So a generation ago, there were 45 of them. Now there's one. And that was five years ago, and they're no longer there. So now a town that as long as human history has been recorded in southern Sicily has been a fishing port famous for processing and distributing tuna. I mean, I'm talking about predating the Bible now no longer exists for that purpose. It's a lovely little town with lots of other things, and but that's gone. And, I mean, I, I could keep giving example after example after example. Huge swaths of populations are displaced by this. I mean, you know, part of it is affected by global warming. Part of it is affected by the culture shift that happens. I mean, we, we all know the problems with fossil fuels, but I don't think anybody, if you could turn back the clock, well, maybe we would, would say, let's keep the horse and buggy people in business, right? So what do you do? What do you do? Do, do you force the, the, the last tuna factory in Marzamemi to stay open somehow? I, I'm not sure that's good either. I think the answer is eat less tuna and figure out how we keep other cultural pathways alive so they don't completely die, so that we can keep learning from them. I mean, there's still people making horse and buggies. Well, horses, of course, but still making buggies, I guess, in in pockets of the country where there's an enthusiasm for buggy riding. Amish Pennsylvania, for example, or Amish Wisconsin as well. But we have to figure out a way to catalog these things. And, and you know, I don't want to use the seed saver mentality with cultural totems, but to see certain things disappear, I think, is criminal if we do so without learning the five W's from them before they go. I mean, that to me is the tragedy. That's the stuff that keeps me sort of up at night. Um, I, I worry about tribal peoples that I've come in contact with who, you know, and, and while it's not necessarily food, I, I just remember being in Namibia and I mean, you know, with folks who are living, the Himba are living indistinguishable from their ancestors' uh, way of life a thousand years ago. I mean, they're in, in loincloths, you know, pastoral, fully pastoral people, uh, herding. Every Himba man takes five or six wives and has five or six children because your children and your family are your standing army. They're your workforce, right? Uh, so on and so forth. And you look at these, you look at the Himba, who desire the children because we've sent them to schools, right? Because education is good. So NGOs set up a school. I mean, you took, you, it's going to be a cultural pain point here. We, you know, we set up a school. The kids walk to school. Now they get ridden to school in Jeeps. And they at the school, they have computers. And they see the world and they learn. And now they're all the, the kids that I met now are all teenagers and all bi and trilingual, okay? And their f 
parents are walking around looking like cave paintings. And they all have said, when I revisited there, I, I don't want to be a goat herder. I want to go to the city and, you know, I, I want to be Steve Jobs. I want to be Ronaldo. I want to be... They, they, they see everything, right? And the himba are, are going to disappear because of it. And so are the Gentoisie in Botswana and the Laosu in Thailand. And the foods of those peoples are going to disappear. And global warming is taking care of foods moving around in other ways and creating droughts in places that used to be rain of plenty. And I just think awareness of this is the first step, which is why I love talking about it so much, because awareness hopefully will breed some action on other people's parts. It's why I'm so passionate about documenting it in my show. Beyond bugs, like what else in your travels do you think are actually the future of food that we could actually eat? Two things. Well, I think, I think bug eating is going to become a part and parcel of our daily life. I think sea vegetables, everyone has waited for sea vegetables to have their moment. They will. It has to be, we, we need to learn to grow the right species, process them the right way, make them palatable to people that don't like slimy, fishy stuff, right? We're creating a whole generation of more uh, engaged, more adventurous eaters because they see it on TV. And I think that people are going to start eating more little fish with the heads on it. We see the numbers trickling up, more seaweed, more bugs, right? It's, it's all happening. I, I know this is going to sound crazy, <laughs> but bear with me on this idea for a second. Human beings have been around for how long? A, a, a long time. Okay, yes. a fuck of a long time. <laughs> so let's just say human beings have been around for 10 years, all right? If you made a timeline, we've only been eating for pleasure for about a day. Okay, think about that. We've only been eating for pleasure for about a day if all of human existence was encapsulated in a 10-year timeline. I think the biggest trend in food by 2050 ah, is going to be eating not for pleasure. It's going to be eating meals for necessity from which we take no pleasure. Now, society is not ready. Te technologically, you can go out if someone... They have the technology. The, the car companies, I mean, this is well-documented. They have cars that can drive themselves. But are you ready to do 70 miles an hour down the highway, texting and listening to music while your car robotically gets you from one place to the other? I'm not ready to let my hands off the steering wheel, psychologically and emotionally. We're not ready. Ten years from now, there'll be enough robotics, enough things that do things by themselves that we might be there. There's a product out there now, there's many, called Soylent, right? There's also uh, companies, most famously in Holland, that have manufactured meat in a Petri dish that are going to take, essentially, flavorless protein mass to market. I think at a certain point, we're going to be making choices, maybe by 2050, maybe earlier, maybe 10 years later, but in my child's lifetime, he will be confronted with the idea of saying, wow, there's 21 meals a week, I'm going to take a third of them, a third, from something that is not about pleasure, so that we can enjoy the foods that give us pleasure, in the same way that I think many 
you know, arable land is disappearing. Who knows what global warming is going to do by that point? Colonization of other astronomical objects. I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but people got to go somewhere. And we have these technologies in the pipeline where people can look at places in the future. I mean, I've heard lectures here at South by Southwest, not on food weekend, uh, but uh, not at South Bites, but in other parts of the festival talking about this idea is this is real, you know? And I think, you know, uh, Rob Reinhardt, who created Soylent, I asked him last year at a party that I'm, I'm going to see him at the same party again tonight, so I can't wait to check in with him. But I said, what is it about Soylent that makes you not market it? It's the greatest idea. This could save people. I mean, Soylent should be coming out of the backs of UN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planes into places where people are starving. It has all these wonderful ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Soylent is a flavorless, well, it's not really full, but it's a, it's a, you dump some ingredients into a glass of water, stir it and drink it. It gives you all the nutrients you need for the day, right? It's a, it's a meal in a glass uh, that isn't slim fast. And he said, the, the world isn't ready for it. He said, we're just sitting there, our investors, our company, everything. We're just letting the growth happen naturally. Because at some point, people are going to say, yes, that's the thing. But if you tell them to take a meal and you say, here's lunch people are not going to be that excited in the same way they can't let go of the steering wheel of their car. So yes, bugs, less, yes, sea veg, yes, we're going to find a new species of fruit in the Amazon that we can farm the crap out of and it'll have all of our vitamin C. I mean, you know, those things will happen. But I think one of the biggest trends is going to be in eating food that does not give us pleasure, which means reorienting the nature of our culture. We are lotus eaters. We have become more and more spoiled as human beings with every passing year, especially in America. And that, that attitude towards life, I think, is going to come to a screeching halt at some point. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. So that was the amazing Andrew Zimmer. I then sat down with Austin chef Tyson Cole of Uchi to discuss the past and future of sushi, traditional rules, who's breaking them, and how American sushi chefs are taking the medium to the next level. A slight warning, though. This tape will make you crave nigiri, so pace yourself. We can't start talking about the future without looking to the past. So traditional sushi has certain uh, rules and practices. So can you kind of talk a little bit about the traditional ethos of sushi making? Um, you know, sushi is actually a really modern thing. It's, it's less than 150, 200 years old. So... It began to, um, it was about uh, preservation, about saving fresh fish and using vinegar to do that. Um, sushi actually means vinegared rice. It has nothing to do with fish. 
And so when there was no refrigeration back in the day in, in Japan, actually in Tokyo, they would uh, wrap fish with vinegared rice to preserve it. Um, and sushi, as you see it today, like nigiri sushi pieces, that only came about like 150 years later. So, um, and that also started in Tokyo. And um, something that I think sushi is just a small part of Japanese culture on the whole. Um, Japanese people and culture are all about respect. And when I say respect, I mean like um, with food specifically, uh, the day-to-day -day life of a Japanese person is is about seasonality and respect for the food and living your life. Um, the sense of, uh, you know, it's the opposite of America, for example. You know, here we, we um, it's the eat to live or live to eat conversation. And so I fell in love with that when I first started working with Japanese and the sushi came later after that once I was totally immersed with Japanese people and Japanese food, the respect they have for the food, and all the rules that they had in place are, this is right, this is wrong, and everything had such structure, um, and someone that's really hard at being structured, um, I think most people are really hard, it's challenging being really organized or structured sometimes, it was nice to have something to latch onto and learn and uh, dive into. And so I did that, and then, you know, the thing was, is uh, sushi is something that you can apply to that, that ethos of we're really going to set these standards and set this regulation where this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. And now we're going to see how you can do that well and how you can learn how to do it better and consistently. Um, so it's a, a really large topic, if you can tell, like I'm rambling. <laughs> you know? No, that's great. So it's, it's really about, you know, sushi today, it's just, it's, we'll talk about this for however long, the next half hour, but it's just grown beyond where I could ever imagine it would have grown to. Um, and I think it's amazing. And I'm glad to play a part of it. So let's talk about you, because that's okay. part of this conversation, obviously, mm -hmm. is, you know, you started out as a dishwasher and you worked your way up to head sushi chef. Hi. <clears throat> Yes, and you yes. have worked under two masters. Um, yes. And you eventually... Three. three. Yes. All right, my the internet was wrong. Oh, oh. that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, one of those people challenged you to learn Japanese. Yes. How did that impact learning for you? Um, you know, it was the thing where when I started making sushi... Um, it was, a, it was a gift. I had, I had been working at a Japanese restaurant for two years, two and a half years, and waiting tables mostly and washing dishes sometimes. And um, I just fell in love with the people, and I fell in love with the food. And even after that, I started eating sushi. I was kind of scared of it. I didn't like it in the beginning, actually. And um, I would hang out with one Japanese guy, this guy named Kyo, and we would go to his apartment every day after work, and he would cook every night. And he would teach me how to cook all these traditional Japanese dishes. And so I was immersed in it, and I realized, and we would watch, uh, also, we would watch VHS tapes, that's how long ago it was, and we would watch this, all these Japanese cooking competitions all the time, and we'd watch this show called Iron Chef that I thought was really cool. And um, it just got me inspired to want to actually try to become a Japanese chef. and. Uh, 
with him. He was a sushi chef. He started showing me some rules. And I said, okay, I want to do this. And I asked the owners who were also Japanese, can I, can I be a sushi chef here? And they said, no, you can't. You're white. And so I quit.、Um, and they called me back two days later. And they said, we're sorry we fired you, but if you want to come back to work in our kitchen, we'll let you make sushi in the kitchen when no one can see you. And so、um, I did that for about a year and a half. And then、um, fast forward, two of the chefs left to Japan. Eventually, they didn't have a choice, and they let me go out in front of the customers. And very quickly, they realized it was a huge、um, sea change.、Um, Having someone that could speak English to American customers and tell them what they were actually eating.、Um, the, the guests had a much better time and spent a lot more money. And they were like, Can you work every day up here now at Sushi Bar? Tell me about the first night that you were in front of customers. What was that like?、Uh, it was pretty cool. I started working lunches in the beginning, and pretty quickly I started getting regular customers because. Um, at lunch, it's always the same people that live near there, that work near there. And、uh, I started forming relationships. And、um, I wanted to get better every day. And so every day I would walk to Whole Foods and I would buy my own, with my own money, I would buy flowers for decorations for my sushi plates. And I would use those at, for lunchtime and later at dinnertime. And just little by little, I met more people. And then I eventually had a friend who said, Hey, you should go to this place called Mitsushino. And I went there, and it was like the difference between the NFL and high school football.、Um, they had like, there w a s like four Japanese guys, all with like long hair and these real wood cutting boards and these amazing knives. And I was like, Holy crap, I have to get a job here. And so,、um, I went a week later and asked the sensei, the main guy there, could I, could I get a job there? And he said, Can you read and write Japanese? And I said, No. And he said, You will never work here. <laughs> and I was crushed. I was crushed.、Um, and then、uh, about a month later, no, three weeks later, I was sleeping one night and someone knocked on my door. At 3 a.m., and it was that same guy, the Mitsushino head chef, with two Japanese guys, and they were really, they were kind of drunk, and they had a case of Budweiser, and he sat me on my couch in my underwear and said, We want you to come work with us. I'll pay you double what they're paying you. And that was it. And so I went there to work, and I worked there for seven, seven eight years, seven and a half years. What made him want to wake you up at 3 a.m. in your underwear and tell you that? I don't know.、Uh, I think because people were starting to find out about me working at Kyoto and、um, how hard I was trying to improve in my creativity and what I was trying to do with sushi on my own that wasn't inherently as Japanese. I think he was intrigued by it and my work ethic as well. And so that's why I went to work there. And it pretty much changed my life.、Um, working at Mutsushino, I, I eventually met、uh, my wife there as my customer and also my partner today, Anuchi. So,、um, incredibly serendipitous. Serendipitous. What was the first bite of sushi that made you understand sushi?、Um, that's a really good question.、Ah, such a deep question. You know, the first raw fish I ever ate was at a place called Nippon 
It's a Japanese restaurant in Houston, Texas. And my friend took me there, and it was raw flounder in a vinaigrette sauce, like a ponzu sauce. And at that time, I had never had raw fish before, and I didn't know what it was going to taste like, but it was so crisp and refreshing and citrusy and light, and I just wanted to eat more of it. And um, I was a little bit of foreshadowing with that. But um, sushi itself, later, um, like when I was working at Kyoto, I was a very typical American where I, I started with rolls, and then I started eating like um, rolls with three or four things in them, and then a tuna roll, and then I was like, I think I like the tuna better than the roll, and then I started eating the tuna without the roll, and step by step, and same thing today in the sushi restaurants that we, that we um, try to go to, or even the ones that we have, it's like, it's a learning process, right? There's always another level up of something new to try. That's what's so fun and exciting about sushi, I think, is it's so addictive because of that. When was the moment you were like, oh, God, this is terrifying? <laughs> that's funny. Uh, that's a great question. A few times. One time I, when I went to Bond Street, I was really I was a little overconfident, if not cocky, and um, took a bus. It was in the middle of winter, and it was like 20 degrees, and I went there, and... I mean, I was, I had a head full of steam. I thought I could rule the world in sushi. And um, I walked into that kitchen in that sushi bar and I saw guys doing things that I never imagined that people could do with knives. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was very terrified. And they said, okay, do you want to work? You want to work here? You can start tomorrow. I said, okay. So I went to Brooklyn, took the train, came back the next day, and I walked in. And I had my knives. I thought they were sharp. But lo and behold, they weren't very sharp compared to those guys' knives. And um, I had this thing called, it's called katsura, katsura nuki. Katsura is when you take something and you basically, um, with your knife, you carve it on the outside in a round pattern, holding the item or the fruit or vegetable in your left hand, the knife in your right hand. And you make you actually carve it into sheets. And... Um, I was still, I was getting pretty good at it, but not great. And I would usually do that with like daikon radish and carrots and things like this. And um, again, I thought it was good, but they brought out, um, I would like for example, when I worked in Austin, I would do four or five daikon radishes and it would take me about an hour to do like sheets of that on a radish. And that first day at Bond Street, they brought in, I said, they said, can you do katsura? And I said, hi, like trying to be positive, like Japanese style. And they said, oh, okay. And these guys, they knew they were setting me up. And um, they came down the stairs with two cases of daikon. And they said, okay, this is what you're going to do today. And it crushed me. I was terrified. I thought my hand was going to fall off. It was awful. <laughs> right? But it was, it was such a perspective, you know. Um, and I love that about what with sushi. There's always another level. There's always something better, right? And so it, it's really exciting to me. Love it. Very blessed to do it. Well, thinking about sushi today, I mean, obviously sushi has kind of moved into this new era where people are really improvising and, and doing new things with it. You know, you look at Shuko in New York, um, the guys there are blasting hip hop throughout the whole meal and they've ended with apple pie. Um, at 242 wow. Cafe um, Fusion in Long Beach, it's a all-female um, sushi bar. Totally. Um, why do you think 
That's great. It has become this way. You know, what um, sort of shift has happened or what do you think has ha helped propel it forward in that way? Um, I mean, there's a simple answer to that. It's, it's America. Um, you know, Americans have a way of, of we have this desire within us because we always want to raise the bar because America, we're like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try something new. We're going to innovate. And I think America's probably the best, um, most talent in the world in innovation, you know? And so, and the food world today, especially, I mean, real time, 2016, it's not just sushi bars. It's every restaurant right now. Everybody's raising the bar. And I think it's the same thing, like you said, with those sushi places trying to do more fusion, try new things, serve things that don't usually fit together. Um, it's scary a little bit. I like that kind of fusion. I like trying new things. Um, do I always like it? No. Sometimes I think it bastardizes the actual product um, because it's always it's a marriage of flavors and does really X go with Y. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, and as a chef, that's really about being the editor and the producer and deciding what does go, what doesn't go. So, but always and forever, I'll, I love uh, anything that's innovative. It's, it's if you if you don't keep evolving, you die. So it's it's awesome. I mean, you're obviously not just spearheading sushi at Uchi and Uchiko, but you're really. Um, You've pioneered a lot of Asian fusion as well. But tell me about how you instill innovation and creativity in your kitchens. Um, a lot of it has to do with uh, menu engineering. Um, you know, I think a lot of the success at Uchi from the beginning was because of the menu design. Um, half the menu is a permanent core menu, and the other half of the menu is a daily seasonal special sheet that changes every day. Um, the beauty of that is you're growing people and you're growing talent. And so if you, if you work at a restaurant as a cook or a chef and it's the same menu every day, after a month you're bored and you start hating working there, right? And so if you have a place like we have where you have that core menu that's permanent and stuff that you can work hard to be consistent, but the other half of the menu is seasonal where there's always something new coming in the back door, um, it, it adds to the excitement of your job. It adds to the level of fun. It's somewhere you want to go, you want to be. And from there, next step, it, it ends up being something that's contagious. And then the culture grows with that, and the focus every day is the front house, the back of the house. Everybody's excited about what's next, what's coming today, what do we have? And that kind of bleeds to the customer as well. So I think it's uh, that's part of the... Um, I think that's the main reason why we've gotten where where we've gotten with it. What are you excited about right now that you are making or touching or is on the menu or will be on the menu? Wow, that's interesting. Um, these are such good questions. You know, my thing is, is, is our food, Uchi food, is all about perfect bites. And so perfect bites are about amazing textures and amazing flavor combinations amazing uh, temperature combinations. And so, you know, I have teams of people at a lot of restaurants that are working every single day on coming up with new things. And um, I try to taste every single thing that they're working on from the genesis of it to the final plate to before we taste our servers and staff and actually sell plates for money to guests. Um, that's what I'm excited about is there's always something next that I haven't had before that they've created, this talent that we've grown 
um, that's working to innovate continues to amaze me. And uh, it's just so vicariously awesome to be a part of and, and, and wakes me up every day and I'm excited to go to work and see what they're making. And I still kind of get to be involved on the front end, on the innovative side about what do we want to try, what's next, what season is it, what's, what's in season exactly, who's bringing in what, what do you want to do with it. Um, for example, we're doing a, the festival here in the month and doing a taco competition. And so excited about that, you know, just about trying to make these perfect bites. Tacos are perfect, perfect news for that, right? Two bites, three bites. You're going to try to win a competition. I'm like, yes, I'm in. I'm trying. Right? <laughs> it's exciting to me, trying to make perfect food. It's very Japanese, I think. So that wraps up the latest episode of Munchies, the podcast. Thanks so much to Andrew Zimmern, Tyson Cole, and the entire staff of South by Southwest. For more information on what Andrew Zimmern's up to these days, head over to andrewzimmern.com. If you're lucky enough to be in Austin, Houston, or Dallas, you can visit one of Tyson Cole's Uchi locations for an unforgettable sushi experience. We'll be launching our next episode in two weeks. So until then, check out all of our delicious Munchies content at munchies.tv, peep us at munchies on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook too. I'm Helen Holliman. I'll catch y'all real soon. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.